Welcome back to How We Got Here. This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Colton, you are not going to believe this. I just got an email from Gary Powers Jr., the son of the American CIA U-2 pilot shot down over Russia. No way was that actually Gary Powers Jr. He lives in Chesterfield County, right outside Richmond. You know, when I was doing research for that segment, I came across Gary Powers Jr.'s website. And on that website, it said he had a P.O. box in Midlothian in Chesterfield County. But I thought that was just kind of a ruse. You know, his dad was a CIA spy. So why not pick a random county in Chesterfield to have a P.O. box? We are totally interviewing him. Bonus episode, here we come. Nothing like listening to a phone call between me and my executive producer, Colton Weekly. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to this surprise bonus episode of How We Got Here. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa, and I'm so excited about this one. In episode four of season three, we told you the amazing and breathtaking story of Francis Gary Powers, the American CIA U-2 pilot shot down over Russia in May of 1960. Powers was held captive for nearly two years until he was traded for Russian spy Rudolf Abel. You can go back and listen to the full story in that episode, but we jumped at the chance to sit down with Gary Powers' son. So we are here with Francis Gary Powers Jr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have an alert up when anyone talks about him. And so you found us, but we're excited because we had no idea you lived in Midlothian, Virginia. Who would have thought? <laughs> right? How did you end up here? I grew up in LA, California. I moved out to Virginia, Northern Virginia, 92, to do my graduate degree at George Mason University, nonprofit management, public administration. I met my wife. We had a child. I had a career up there in nonprofit management. I used to run the Vienna Chamber of Commerce. And along the way, I helped to create the Cold War Museum. In uh, 2005, we had a three year old. We figured hustle, bustle, traffic, crazy congestion, Northern Virginia, where can we go so I'm close enough to get there in a day, far enough to be away, and there was family in the area on my wife's side, so we moved down to Richmond in 2005. And you've been here ever since? Yep, 15 years now. 15 years, June 1st. And you talk about your dad a lot, don't you? I do. I lecture internationally on the topic of the Cold War, the U-2 incident, other events and activities, and I try to set the record straight and inform the general public and students about my father, the misinformation, and what has been done the last 50 plus years to set the record straight. Why is that out there? In 1960, when my father was shot down over the Soviet Union, it's the height of the Cold War, We're coming off the McCarthy era. Espionage was in the headlines because dad got caught spying for the US government, CIA, being shot down over the Soviet Union. At the time, international incident. President Eisenhower gets caught lying. Dad ends up uh, two years in a Soviet prison and then is uh, exchanged for a Soviet spy. So the height of the Cold War, espionage, intrigue, 
it was easier to blame the pilot than to have to admit that we were behind the Soviets in their missile technology. That yes, in fact, the Soviets did have the capability to shoot down a U-2 at 70,000 plus feet. In addition, easier to blame the pilot than to have to further embarrass a president of the United States, Eisenhower. So for my father, he got stuck in this geopolitical quagmire where he did everything he was supposed to do, he followed orders to the T, yet the press in the 60s when he was in prison, he defected, he landed the plane intact, he spilled his guts and told the Soviets everything he knew, or he hadn't followed orders. So this is the misinformation and the controversy of the time. We looked at this final CIA report and actually said in our podcast that, that none of that was true. He followed orders to the T and he didn't give them anything. All they had was the mangled plane. Correct. My dad did everything he was supposed to do. He followed orders to the T. When he gets back home, he's debriefed extensively by the CIA. He's cleared. He then is put before the Senate Select Committee hearing. Prescott Bush, President Bush's grandfather, Barry Goldwater, Senator Dick Russell are on these committee. I think also Albert Gore Sr. was on this committee. So they review, they ask questions, back and forth, eight hours of deliberations. At the end, the Senate exonerates my dad of any wrongdoing. So he's been cleared by the CIA, he's been cleared by the Senate, but he's not yet been cleared by the court of public opinion. And so those rumors and that speculation continue today because of the internet, Everything's true online, right? <laughs> so the misinformation continues to circulate around. But fortunately, I have a book out that helps to set the record straight. Declassified the documents have become available that set the record straight, and the truth is now out there. We couldn't understand why was he getting a hard time because we're not in that mindset. And what is that mindset at that time? That, that time is... The McCarthy era, it was, it, there were spies in every uh, government agency. There were spies in the White House. Uh, McCarthy had his list of 500 uh, communist uh, subversives in, in, the, in the government, some of which was true, some of which was a little exaggerated. What was the truth of what took place? Well, at the best guess, when he was in the Soviet prison, he must have had a flame out. That was the most likely answer, because the Russians can't have the technology to shoot down the plane. They are so far behind us, they can't reach him. Something had to go wrong with the plane. So for the first two years before my father returned home, the most likely scenario is that he descended to a lower altitude where he was then hit by a MiG or a missile. In reality, he was at his assigned altitude of 70,500 feet, the near miss of a SA-2 missile explodes behind the tail section, cause structural failure. The nose pitches forward, the wings snap off, falls out of the sky. He's able to uh, crawl out of the cockpit, basically. He can't use the ejection seat. We read that it would cut off his legs if Correct. he had done yeah. it. Ejection seats in, a, in, a, in the U-2 and most fighter planes, you have to be in a perfect position with your legs clearly tied up so you can clear the canopy rails. If your feet are out here dangling, you can't get them back properly, you can sever your legs off. Ends up crawling out of the airplane. Uh, he's tangled up with his air hose. He breaks free of the air hose, falls free of the aircraft. His parachute opens automatically at 15,000 feet. He parachutes down to the ground. Literally a miracle yes. that he survived that crash. Yes. Had it been a direct hit, he and the plane would have been in little pieces. 
we also read that he had misgivings about the plane that he was going up uh -huh. in. <laughs> is that true? His plane is now up for rotation. The engine has its max number of hours, so it has to go in for an overhaul. They substitute that plane, bring in Article 360. 360 was the tail number, the, the, the designation number for this particular U-2. It's the one that had belly landed in Usugi, Japan, in the glider field. It always seems to have something going wrong with it. Of course, that's the plane that is in rotation for the May 1st flight. Not the best choice. <laughs> and as a result of uh, using that plane, the autopilot did malfunction a bit. So Dad had to fly manually uh, from about uh, one quarter of the trip to halfway through the trip. Dad lands on the outskirts of a collective farm. Uh, the farmers are working the fields. They rush up to him. They help him with his backpack, his parachute, his helmet. They start to ask him questions in Russian. They think he's one of theirs. Doesn't speak Russian, so Dad shrugs his shoulders. This makes one of the farmers a little nervous. Who is this guy? Falls out of the sky, doesn't speak our language. Holds a pitchfork up near him. A few moments go by, Dad's able to communicate USA, so they know he's an American. A car shows up, two men get out, put him in the back seat, and they take him to the local uh, police uh, there in the city that call the KGB, who later that afternoon come and pick him up and take him to Moscow to Lubyanka Prison. Lubyanka Prison is the infamous KGB prison, part of and adjacent to the KGB headquarters in downtown Moscow. Do you know how he was treated in that prison? Oh yes, uh, Dad and I talked about his treatment when, I was, when he was alive. He died when I was 12. So I have very vivid memories of talking to my father and getting answers from him. In 1970, my father wrote this book called Operation Overflight that details his account of what he went through. So when I was 10 years old in 75, I would read a couple of pages or a chapter. Dad would come in to tuck me into bed and I would ask him questions about what he went through. Some of the questions are dealed with, Dad, were you tortured? And he said, no, I was not physically tortured. There was no physical abuse, but there was bright spotlights, there was grueling questions, there was mental games trying to get him to cooperate, um, sleep deprivation, things like that. But there was no physical harm given to my father. And the reason we found out that he was treated well, all things considered, he was too high profile a prisoner. Dad was internationally known because the Soviets had captured him and had promoted the fact that he was in KGB custody. They wanted to show the world, the KGB, the Kremlin, wanted to show the world how humane they were, how nice they were, how they treated the spies that they captured in their country. It was all a propaganda coup to further embarrass the United States and to give the Soviets the upper hand. And embarrass Eisenhower. Exactly. Because he's saying, it didn't happen, it was a weather mission. When Dad was shot down on May 1st, the Soviets say nothing. Eisenhower and the CIA realize that something's gone wrong, that the airplane has not reached Boda, Norway, where it should have landed. They try to figure out what's going on. They don't hear anything from the Soviets. They assume that my father died in the crash, or certainly Khrushchev would have paraded him around as evidence. Well, this allows Eisenhower to come up with plausible deniability. Dead pilot, we can release a cover story, that it was a weather research plane, straight off course, that the pilot had radioed trouble with his oxygen equipment. So that's the cover story that's released. 
two days go by. On May 7th, Khrushchev comes up to center stage, a press conference. Oh, comrades, not only did we shoot down the plane, but we also have captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, who's quite alive and kicking and was confessed to spying for the CIA. So all of a sudden, it's international headlines. CIA spy flight shot down over the Soviet Union. Powers, uh, a young second lieutenant from Pound, Virginia, captured, uh, will stand trial for espionage. And so this is how my father ends up uh, going through a Soviet trial in 1960 uh, for three days. Is it a sham of a trial? A sham of a trial. My father was uh, allowed to have a Soviet defense council so that he did have counsel representing him, but the counsel never did anything to help with his case. During the questions and answers, during the uh, court proceedings, not once did the Soviet counsel object to any question that was asked of my father. So it was assumed, we assumed, that it was um, already predetermined what the outcome would be. That the defense and the prosecution was working in tandem with the Soviet government to have this outcome of 10 years in prison, which was a very quote-unquote lenient sentence when compared to 30 years that America gave Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy in America, and the execution that they did to the Rosenbergs in the early 50s. So it was all a way to further embarrass the United States. Was he married at the time to your mom? So did they tell your family? Dad was married to his first wife, Barbara Moore. They met in Georgia when he was an F-84 pilot there. They were married a year-ish before he went over into the YouTube program. The uh, CIA does inform Barbara and his parents that he is lost over Turkey, a routine weather research flight, that they have uh, people looking for the airplane currently, and that the Soviets have bragged that they have shot down a spy plane. We think that that's the same plane. We are trying to find out what has happened and we will keep you informed. All the while, that was a cover story. In reality, CIA spy flight, taking photographs from 70,000 feet, trying to find out the strengths and weaknesses of our enemy. That's all been declassified. Oh yeah, right? uh, for the most part. He was uh, flying along with the other YouTube pilots for four and a half years between 1956 and 1960. They were flying missions over the Soviet Union, China, Tibet, India, Pakistan, Middle Eastern countries, and Eastern European countries. The whole point of the program was to gather intelligence, photographic intelligence, of the strengths and weaknesses of our adversaries. So he takes a plane that had a history of malfunctioning and that gave him pause. In the CIA documents that we looked at, it also said he took the silver dollar mm -hmm. and the poison. And he, they said in the documents he took it because this was the first time he was getting in a mm -hmm. plane he didn't like. So he, well, took not it. he really didn't, didn't, like, didn't but usually take it. Well, yes. And this was part of the controversy that surrounded Dad, because he had this quote-unquote suicide device on him. It was told to the pilots during training, if you're caught, you will be tortured. Here is a way to alleviate the pain and suffering. A small silver dollar, I have a replica of it, hidden uh, inside was a small pin dipped in a poison. Had the poison been injected or ingested into the system, it would shut down the central nervous system, the pilot would have died from lack of oxygen. There was no official orders to take the device, no official orders to use the device. But he just decided to take it this time because he didn't normally. Correct, yeah, this is the first time that he took this device with him. It was the longest mission ever attempted. 
he thought, you know, a little extra security, if I am near a border, I can use it as a weapon. I don't remember him telling me this. Um, if I'm stuck in a tree, I've had a crash, I'm bleeding out, I can use it to alleviate the pain and suffering. And heaven forbid they do end up torturing me, I can use it to alleviate the pain and suffering. The official orders that were given to the pilots is that if capture appears eminent, pilots are perfectly free to talk to them about the truth of their mission, taking photographs over their territory. They should not talk about specifications of the equipment on board the airplane. So my father was able to appear to cooperate by answering questions truthfully that would be verified in the press. And then he was able to prevent the release of classified information by playing dumb. I'm a pilot. I was hired to fly this airplane. I don't know what this piece of equipment does. In reality, he knew every bit of that plane back and forth. Was this part of the misinformation at the time of some people believing, oh, he should have used the poison? The CIA said he did what he was supposed to do. Correct. Optional device to take, optional device to use at the pilot's discretion. But because he had this device on him, and it's the height of the Cold War and James Bond, uh, that era, even Ian Fleming comes out in a report that says, I wish he would have used the pen. So here we have Ian Fleming, a very reputable author. I love his movies and books, but he basically slams dad by saying he should have used the pin. He didn't know what he was talking about on that issue. And if he had used the pin, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so had my father used that pin, I wouldn't be here. So I'm really glad he didn't use it. <laughs> He went through a lot, but he still stayed with the YouTube program after coming back, right? Correct. Did he want to do that? Did he have a choice? Well, this is another part of the story, and I have this outlined in my book. When Dad gets home, a lot of controversy. He is the known spy. The CIA really doesn't want to do anything further with him. His cover is blown. He's of no value to them anymore. He's supposed to go back into the military, the Air Force, at a rank comparable to his peers. That's what his contract says. He is the known spy. I am assuming that the Air Force said, you know, Frank, we really don't want to bring you back in. If we do, then we will be accused of employing spies. So dad is like persona non grata. He's a hot potato. <laughs> Nobody really wants to deal with him. He's too controversial, too toxic because of all the negative press and all the misinformation out there. Kelly Johnson, the designer of the U2, offers dad a job as a Lockheed test pilot as long as he can pass the mental and physical examinations. Dad passes with flying colors, no ill effects from his incarceration. And that's how he became a U-2 pilot, test pilot for Lockheed between 1963 and 1970. And then 1970, what does he go do? In 1970, he writes his autobiography, Operation Overflight. Tells his story. For the first time, Originally, he was offered like a six-figure advance in 1962, which was a lot of money uh, for that time period. And the CIA said, you know, Frank, let's have you take some time to readjust to life in the States and get acquainted with the new position, and you can write your book, you know, in a few more years. So he's a dutiful person. He follows orders, refuses the advance. And then in about 68, he's thinking, you know, I want to tell my story. He writes a letter or two to the CIA, I'd like permission to write my book. No answer. Then, after about three times of writing for permission, he writes a letter saying, I'm going to write my book, 
If you have any questions, please let me know. He gets a response that basically says, thank you for letting us know. We wish you well with your endeavors. Please put it before the review board as per your contract. So in 1970, dad puts it before, or 69, puts it before the CI review board. The same month that the review board reviews his book, he's let go from Lockheed. Hmm, coincidence? My father didn't think so. And documents have come to surface, which I've outlined in my book that I've written, uh, that do connect the CIA, the Air Force, and Lockheed in trying to help dad to get back on his feet. Someone in the government, I believe, did not appreciate the fact that dad told a story and there were repercussions. Because the CIA never likes their story told. <laughs> um, yes, they do and they don't. It, it all depends on what story it is. Is it going to be flattering or is it controversial? Is it Argo or is it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Argo a success? U2 incident? Not a success. <laughs> He goes to TV and radio and, and news? Yes. Uh, between 1970 and 72, he's on the lecture circuit. Uh, some of your audience uh, members might remember the uh, Soupy Sales Show, the Johnny Carson Show, late night talk shows of the era, uh, universities around the country, international audiences in Europe. In 1972, he gets a job flying again. Dad is a pilot. This is all he wants to do. He doesn't want to talk in front of people. He wants to fly. <laughs> He gets a job with KGIL radio station in the San Fernando Valley, flying a fixed-wing Cessna 170 or 172 over the LA area, reporting on news, weather, and traffic for the rush hour commute. Then in 76, he gets a job with NBC Television, KNBC affiliate Los Angeles, flying their helicopter, reporting on news, weather, and traffic for the evening news. I used to fly with him in the airplane for radio uh, announcements, and I was flying with him in helicopters when he was training to fly helicopters. He flies with uh, NBC from 76 to 77, August 1st. Helicopter runs out of gas, crashes. He and the cameraman are killed in the accident. You were alive for that? I was 12 at that time. You remember this vividly? Oh, very much so. Um, uh, oh, oh, my mom picks me up from summer school. I'm transitioning from sixth grade to seventh grade. We come into the house, there are cars in the driveway, and there are people coming out of the house. Mom, how'd they get in the house? How'd they get in the house? And mom said, oh, it's Marvine Neff. It's Mrs. Marlowe, uh, Jess Marlowe's wife, who was the commentator, the news anchor on the NBC News at the time. So we're bringing groceries into the house. Mrs. Neff and Mrs. Marlowe are saying, hey, Sue, you better sit down, we, you know, let's sit down. She's going, oh, have a drink, have this, do that, I'll get you something. Um, and then all of a sudden, like the light bulb went on her head. She knew something had happened. And she looked at him, and I'm, I'm watching her, and she says, is it Frank? And they can kind of shook their heads and, and didn't know. And she said, if he's alive, take me to him. If he's dead, let me know and all they could do was shrug their shoulders. Because they didn't know at the time? They, did, they, yeah, they, they just knew it went down. Well, they, they knew, but they, nothing had been confirmed. And they didn't want to be the ones to break that to my mom. And their news reporters. Like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, eventually mom realizes that the worst has happened. I am shuttled over to a friend of mine, uh, Chris Conrad, uh, who I've known since second grade, still a very dear friend. When I'm there, Mrs. Conrad comes home. Mrs. Neff was just dropping me off and she whispers in Mrs. Conrad's ear that something had happened to Frank, my dad. Mrs. Conrad comes up and gives me a big old bear hug. And it's like, oh, and that's when I start to cry, knowing that something had gone wrong. 
Later that uh, afternoon, maybe an hour or two, the phone rings. It's Mr. Conrad. Mr. Conrad is better known for his um, time in television with uh, Wild Wild West, Ba Ba Black Sheep, uh, Robert Conrad knocked the battery off my shoulder. He gives me a pep talk on the phone and basically says, regardless of what you hear, you know, don't let uh, other impressions uh, uh, sway your judgment of your father. You know, he's a fine young man. He gave me a little prep talk in um, uh, this situation. Is that because the news media at the time would start to bring up his history, obviously? Oh, the controversy. The controversy, yeah, controversy, because you'll remember right. Francis Gary Powers. Mom really set me straight when I was growing up. We'd sit down and talk about what took place, and she would try to inform me the best she could. But she, again, was CIA, and she was under obligations not to inform outside people of what she knew. This was a little different circumstances that I'm the son, dad has just passed away, there's a lot of controversy out there. So when I'm growing up in high school, she's basically telling me the truth of what took place. So two CIA parents. Yes. How do we know you're not CIA? Um, I am not. <laughs> uh, you can take it for what it's worth. Um, if I was, I'd probably be retired by now. <laughs> and you still honor your dad every day by what you do with telling his story. I, I guess it is honoring my dad. And I'm glad that I was able to do that. Uh, as a result of my efforts to help set the record straight, I end up doing 25 years worth of research my book, Spy Pilot, comes out in uh, 2019. It takes Dad's reputation from infamy and controversy to that of an American hero. There's a little movie out there. <laughs> a little Spielberg movie, yes. Just, just a Spielberg movie. No <laughs> big <thought>? deal. <laughs> um, Steven Spielberg ends up doing a movie in 2015 called Bridge of Spies. When I first find out that Spielberg, of all people, is looking to this movie. I'm thinking, he's not going to do this. Why would he do this? He has no reason to do this. Well, he did have a reason. And he ends up doing this movie. And I'm going, oh, crap. How do you get in touch with Steven Spielberg? You just can't pick up the phone and call him. He's a very busy man. But I want to let him know that we have concerns. I resort to Google. I find his name, his movies. I find people who work on his movies. I find some of their names. I find some of their email addresses. I send out an unsolicited email. Hi, Gary Powers Jr. Looking to get in touch with Mr. Spielberg about this movie, Bridge of Spies, that will portray my father. Very important that we express the Powers family's concerns. If he bases the portrayal of my father on the misinformation, they'll be painting him in a negative light. If they base it off the declassified files that have come to surface the last 50 plus years, they'll be painting him as a hero to our country. So for obvious reasons, I wanted to establish contact. As a result of my email, I get a phone call from the producer, Mark Platt. He says, thank you very, very much for reaching out. I like what you have to say. You're a knowledgeable young man. Would you like to be a technical consultant on the film? Well, yes, <laughs> of course, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I get the contract and it's basically, I answer questions, I'm on set as required. I'm, I can't tell anybody about what I'm doing. I mean, <laughs> all that stuff. At the very end of this contract, it says, if I don't like the end result, I can't sue. I'm going, oh boy. So you give away your rights. Yeah, you give away my rights, use the family's name, and all of a sudden they can do whatever they want. So I thought long and hard, and I figured it was more important to be a part of this production and try to steer them in the right direction. If I had walked away, I'd have had no say whatsoever. So I do sign the dotted line, 
I'm a consultant on the film. I actually do a little cameo in the film when the hangar doors are opening up for the pilot to go out to his May 1st mission. I'm in a suit. I'm uh, escorting the pilot out with a clipboard. I'm a secret agent man. So you are escorting your dad out in the movie. Yes, yeah, very surreal. That's amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was very a wonderful experience getting to talk with Spielberg, with Hanks, with Austin Stoll, who portrayed my father, the young actor, and even Mark Reliance, uh, who ended up winning an Academy Award or an Oscar for um, his portrayal of Rudolf Abel, the Soviet spy my father was exchanged for. How'd they do? They did fairly well. Now, in the very beginning of the film, it says, inspired by true events. The U-2 incident and my father's involvement along with uh, Rudolf Abel through Spielberg's eyes. And it's his adaptation of the true events as seen through public opinion, newspapers, consultants, and uh, books of the time period. So overall, we like the movie. The big picture is historically accurate. The details of each scene, it's Hollywood. <laughs> so it's not 100% accurate. We want to thank you for being on our podcast. This has been wonderful. For more information, uh, your viewers and or your listeners can go to GaryPowers.com. They can go to SpyPilotBook.com. And for more information on the Cold War Museum, they can go to ColdWar.org. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly for yada, 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 the usual. <laughs> Bonus shout out to photojournalist Dan Hefner for helping us get this interview and making a TV version so you can watch over at NBC12.com. And thank you to Francis Gary Powers Jr. for sharing your father's incredible and heroic journey with us. Steven Spielberg, if you're listening, this is your second shout out on our podcast. Just saying. If you like this podcast and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere@nbc12.com. And if you've listened this long, you deserve a treat. We have another bonus episode dropping at the end of September. This one was created by popular demand. You ask, we deliver. We'll be back in your life in September 